With Linode, build applications using their simple cloud manager, API, or CLI. Quickly scale up or down with standard VMs, dedicated CPUs, and enterprise-grade GPUs. All with the best price-to-performance and same pricing across 11 global data centers. They're also people, just like you. You get fast, human support 24 by 7. So visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number 2, C-L-O-U-D, and get $100 in free credit to try them out. On day two cloud, we've had a lot of discussions over using infrastructure as code, especially when it comes to the cloud. And we've looked at solutions like Ansible and Terraform and the AWS CDK and Pulumi, which begs the question, which IAC solution should you learn? Does it matter what you already know? Does it matter how your organization is structured? Should we even be talking about IAC and not IAS or IAD? Ned and I decided to sit down and have a chat, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you've got thoughts on this, hit us up on Twitter or join the Packet Pushers Slack at packetpushers.net slash Slack, or again, Twitter would be at Day2CloudShow. And you know, uh, lastly, if you'll indulge me in a little shameless self-promotion, I have started a new podcast called Chaos Lever with my buddy Chris Hayner. It's actually a reboot of our old podcast, Buffer Overflow, which... That's a story for another time, probably accompanied by copious amounts of fermented comestibles. But uh, anyhow, the, the podcast is tech news and analysis and some slightly off-kilter humor. So if that sounds like your thing, you can check it out, chaoslever.com or in your podcast app of choice. Now on with the show. Now on with the show. Okay, Ned. Well, this topic came up because we were actually prepping for a show with Pulumi, which by the time you hear this show, uh, you've probably listened to that show with Pulumi. And my brain went, okay, if the main value proposition of Pulumi is about using a programming language that you know, full-featured programming language like uh, like Python, and you can add Pulumi magic and Pulumi backend and Pulumi state and so on to give you a framework for delivering infrastructure as code and not having to learn a domain-specific language, a DSL, a domain-specific language like what is offered with Terraform, HCL, uh, Ned, wouldn't I want to do that? Or would I want to do that? And, and, and then I realized, I have someone I know who knows so much about this very topic, Ned, and it's you! Oh, dear. So I thought we'd dig into all this knowledge you have of of these sorts of things and maybe come to some sort of an opinion on when it's good to use a Pulumi-like tool where I could use Python, if that's what I know, and do IAC, or use Terraform uh, instead, or some other tool, Ansible, whatever, that's got an, uh, its own DSL and use that in instead. So I, I guess maybe, Ned, we should start with defining some terms, uh, IAC, DSL, uh, you've got GPPL, general purpose programming language in here. So why don't you define what these mean to you? Sure. Like GPPL is almost harder to say than general purpose programming language. So maybe we'll just assume we're talking about general purpose programming language when we say programming language, uh, just, just to keep it easy. But, you know, let, let's start with that. Let's start with that term. So a general purpose programming language is exactly that. It doesn't have a specific goal in mind. It's meant to be able to achieve software development in the more abstract sense of the term. So what are some common GPPLs you might have heard of or messed around with? I mean, Python is an easy example, especially if you come from the networking background. That's probably one you've touched or at least you're aware of. 
Uh, Java, if you come from the old school computer science route like me, <laughs> cut mm. my teeth on Java and you know C and C++ at some point. Those are all GPPLs. Or more recently, if you're in the whole JavaScript world, you can use JavaScript or TypeScript or any of the other mm -hmm. variants thereof. So, okay, that's general purpose programming language. DSL is a domain-specific language. So that's a language that was invented for a specific domain. It really does have a purpose. It's meant to achieve some goal. It's meant to exist in a specific domain, if you will. And You could think of it almost as a proprietary language. Is that fair? I, proprietary implies not open source, and many of these are open source. I think mm. it just... I would look I would think of it as less full featured than a GPPL because it's not trying to be everything to everyone. Uh, if we wanted to put this in terms of like hardware, uh, GPPL is like a CPU. It's just a general purpose chip that can do a lot of different yep. stuff depending on the instructions you send to it. Uh, DSL is more of like an ASIC that you would find inside a switch. Mm. It has a very specific purpose. And so its functionality is limited by that purpose. Where would you f slot in something like PowerShell? Ooh, that's tough because PowerShell is based off another programming language. So it, it's heavily mm. influenced by the .NET framework. However, it is its own thing. And I would go so far to say PowerShell is a GPPL, but it's primarily used as a scripting language. Hmm. Okay. So we've got DSL, GPPL, and then uh, IAC, which we're going to define as infrastructure as code. This is we're using programming, programming techniques, code to manage infrastructure and managing infrastructure in that way. Yeah. We're not logging into the device and standing it up. We're using uh, something like uh, cloud APIs to instantiate some bit of infrastructure. Right. I think IAC is a pretty broad umbrella. It's when you're using code to deploy your infrastructure and it doesn't have any strong opinions on what that code looks like. So you could have a bash script that goes out and provisions yep. infrastructure. That's fine, that's IAC. You can also have a Kubernetes manifest that defines an application through pods and services. That's also IAC. So it can be declarative, it can be imperative, it can be a DSL, it can be a GPPL, and that's kind of what IAC is a big umbrella, and then mm. there's other smaller islands inside it. I'm laughing at the Kubernetes manifest because I don't want you to make me call YAML infrastructure as code. But in fact, it is a very valid it is. example. I just <laughs> resent it deeply. <laughs> well, that's something that I think we should touch on later and maybe put a pin in that, you know, is YAML infrastructure as code? And if so, to what degree? But I, th I think we have to come back to that later because uh, I think we, we can first evaluate DSLs and where they're good and bad and then maybe GPPLs, and then come back to the configuration versus data versus code thing. Now, I'm going to assume a DSL is good from a standpoint of it's got a narrow scope, and so it should be easier to get your head around, and it's solving this specific problem, so you've got good context for it. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's purpose-built, right? So it has the things that you would expect would be useful for its domain. So, you know, good example with Terraform, you're going to be creating infrastructure resources. And wouldn't you know it, one of the high level constructs is a resource so that allows you to define <laughs> an infrastructure resource. So it's like I don't have to hunt and peck and look around for the right library in the general purpose programming language to create a resource. 
that's just that's a top level thing that you use a keyword to define. Oh, I like that. As opposed to uh, digging through an API set to try to find the thing that you need and then doing a bunch of calls, it's constructed around you're trying to build a resource. And so the thinking is there naturally towards the task that you were trying to accomplish. Exactly. So I, I think that's the big leg up that DSLs have to start with is that they're purpose built to achieve a goal. So you're going to find a lot of high level abstractions that fit the task that you're trying to accomplish. Whereas a GPPL, it's like, no, you have to build the framework as well yeah. as do the thing, which right. maybe that's better if you're real persnickety about it. But if you're just trying to get something done quick and dirty, the DSL is going to be easier for you to grok and actually run at first. Well, I guess I could say if the right library exists, or maybe an SDK or like or, or a CDK exists for the language that you're writing in, maybe you end up with some DSL-like features, depending on what objects have been presented to you. Right. But that presumes that you already know a GPPL. So Fair. we're, we're yeah. already throwing that out like it that assumes, hey, you are comfortable with programming, you're comfortable with importing libraries or modules or whatever your programming language uses, uh, and and you're able to make use of them. But not everybody is there already. So I think of DSLs as really good for, say, like a sysadmin who's used to editing configuration files. So they already have the concept of maybe some basic bash scripting to get things done in an imperative way. And they also have the idea of, hey, I'm configuring this Nginx server or I'm configuring SSH for my box or you know whatever it is. There's a config file associated with it because everything's a file in the world of Linux. And I'm comfortable going in and editing that config file and then restarting a service or something and boom, everything works as I expect. But yet we've heard stories of people who struggle with concepts like variables, which if you know a GPPL, that's fundamental. You start out learning things like that. But people who don't come from that world maybe aren't used to variables and then using something like that in a DSL does not come naturally to some folks. Right. To them, the idea of variables and functions and just just the overhead of, you know, most programs, you have to define a main function in there and they're not mm. even going to know that. So starting with a DSL means you're usually starting at, a, at something that's a little easier for them to learn. So the barrier to entry is lower for for folks who are not already familiar with a general purpose programming language. So I think that's good, right? That's <laughs> That's thumbs up. If your boss tells you you need to start automating all this infrastructure and you need to get up to speed quick, the DSL is going to be the where it's at, you know? Well, you know, what's so uh, overwhelming about a general purpose programming language. Again, Python is my weapon of choice. If you start digging through all the documentation just for the standard library in Python, it is so many modules and so many pages and so much that's out there as opposed to... Uh, a DSL, which again, is just going to be, since it's not general purpose, it's more scoped. There's less to try to take in and understand. Exactly. If when I'm trying to figure out how to use, I'll give another example. So it's not Terraform. Uh, Azure DevOps pipelines are defined in YAML. That's another kind of infrastructure as code. And it's almost a DSL in the sense that they have a very specific limited syntax that's associated with that pipeline. And reading through the documentation is pretty straightforward because there's a limited number of things you would do with a pipeline. 
So that makes it easier for me to build out a pipeline configuration. Whereas like if I was writing a pipeline using just Python, my head might explode. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ned, you've got another note in here, uh, in our notes that we're working from for this show. <laughs> Ask me about transpilers. Eek! What, what? Okay. I'm asking you transpilers. This is a super weird one. And it's basically an intermediate step for you to take infrastructure that you want to define. And the thing that actually goes and creates that infrastructure is looking for something in YAML or JSON, but you don't want to write directly in those. So it's a DSL that doesn't doesn't interact directly with the cloud APIs. Instead, it converts the DSL to this YAML or JSON format and then sends that to the cloud. And an example of this, we did the, a show about Bicep for Azure, hmm. and that's a transpiler that takes your Bicep code, which is in a DSL, and converts it to an ARM template, an Azure Resource Manager template, mm -hmm. and then submits that over to the Azure the Azure APIs to create your infrastructure. So I think to me that's like putting a hat on a hat, but <laughs> <laughs> but do, so so as uh, if I'm making a choice of a tool to use to manage infrastructure as code, do I have to care about transpilers, or is that just an interesting side note? It's an interesting side note, and it's just uh, I feel like it's a portal into how things actually get done in the background when you hit whatever the command is to go execute your config in the target environment, this is what it's actually doing in the background. So being aware of that is going to help you debug things later when, you know, things go wrong because they will. I'm putting the podcast on pause to introduce you to sponsor Linode. You could cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, developing, deploying, and scaling your modern applications faster and easier. In fact, when I was looking to migrate my WordPress hosting, I ended up picking Linode because it had the best price at the performance level I was looking for, and I've never looked back. The performance is there for me when my latest Terraform-related post drops, and I know if something goes wrong, Linode offers 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You get to talk to like a real person the whole time. And while Linode is based in my hometown of Philly, they have data centers across the world, all with the same simple and consistent pricing model. And I do mean simple. You shouldn't need a team of financial engineers to understand your cloud bill. And with Linode, you won't. So whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. And you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Day2Cloud. You can find all the details at linode.com slash day2cloud. That's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D. And it's not just Linux VMs. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you could use that $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. As they like to say, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash day2cloud, that's D-A-Y, the number two, C-L-O-U-D, and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. All right, so we've got a lot of reasons why we would use a DSL. Mm -hmm. It's simpler, they're scoped, easier for a sysadmin who doesn't have a general purpose programming language under their belt to get their heads around. 
why wouldn't I want to use a DSL? Well, Ethan, it's not a real programming language. <laughs> oh, 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 just and a programming code elitist just uh, stepped forward to the microphone. Oh, my well, goodness. That's a, that's I, okay. You're, you're being funny and, and making fun of the people that make that accusation. But there is a point there. It isn't a real programming language in, in that sense, right? I mean, like define real programming language, right? Like. That's a very difficult thing to pin down. And if you think you know exactly what it is, good luck telling someone who's been writing HTML and CSS for the last 10 years that they're not using a real programming language. Because my goodness, I've seen some amazing things come out of both of those. And to a certain degree, like CSS is a DSL. But it's a DSL yeah. that you can create full-fledged games and interactive environments on a web page. So it feels like a real language to me. But I mean... To a certain degree, because it's a DSL, we have to trade off functionality in, to embrace the simplicity and the purpose-built nature of the DSL. So there, it's going to be limited by default to where you can actually use it. That is to say, it is not general purpose, it is specific purpose, and so I've got that limitation. That, but going back to your real language thing, that doesn't mean it's not a real language. It's just a limited language. Uh, I, your analysis of, of an ASIC versus a general purpose CPU comes into play here. Uh, <laughs> are you going to call an ASIC not, it's not a real chip? Well, <laughs> no, it's a very specific chip that's super fast at doing specific things. Right. It's got its role in the world. Does it mean it's not a real chip because it's not, you know, x86 instruction set based? Well, no, obviously it, it, it very much is. So right. you're arguing that it is a real language. You know, the trade-off is you giving up some of the things you might be able to do with the general purpose programming language because, hey, they're trying to keep the DSL simple, uh, easy to use, and accomplishing a certain thing. And so it doesn't need to do all the things. Absolutely. And just like in ASIC, if you're trying to get it to do something it was never intended to do, you could probably do it. I mean, it is a processor after all, but it's not going to do it efficiently or elegantly. And I think that's when people start feeling the limitations of DSL, it's because they've reached that point where they needed to do more than it was intended to do. And that might actually be a good time to switch over and start looking at a GPPL because you've probably learned enough about programming at that point that you're ready to go with a more full-fledged uh, general purpose programming language. Well, is that, uh, th that sounds like the point of uh, where I'd move from DSL to GPPL then you're saying stick with the DSL until I've kind of, I can't, I got things I'm trying to get done and I can't do it with the DSL then move over to a GPPL. I think, yeah, that's that's generally if you want to be really pragmatic about it and you already started down the path of a DSL, here comes marching along the, the, the point of no return where I've become a full fledged programmer. I just didn't realize it. And now I need more than what this limited feature set offers me. And actually, to bring it back to the transpiler thing in a weird way, uh, often you'll end up using a GPPL to produce something that looks like a DSL, maybe it's a YAML file that something else ingests. So think of, I'm going to use a Python library to generate Kubernetes manifests programmatically that will then be fed into the Kubernetes API. Mm -hmm. That is not an uncommon pattern to follow. You hit the limits of handcrafting that YAML or using something like Helm to do it. 
now you want the freedom of using uh, Python to create those manifests because it gives you a lot more access to other libraries. But at the end of the day, you're still producing these volumes of YAML that are going to be read into a, a machine or an API. Isn't that effectively what a Terraform provider is doing? Yeah, to a certain degree, the provider's that abstraction layer between the cloud's API or set of APIs and what Terraform's presenting to you in these neat packages of a resource or, or a data source. So yeah, it is the intermediary, and sometimes the intermediary gets in the way. I th yeah, I thought those providers were written in, in Golang. <laughs> they are. They're written in yeah. Go, and they're all leveraging the SDKs for Go that the cloud providers provide. <laughs> But if you want to interact directly with that SDK instead of having the shim of a provider that's making some decisions for you, you can do it. But you have to know how to program in Go if you want to use that SDK. <laughs> so a GPPL is good if I've run the DSL out of gas um, because it's 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 general. I can do whatever I might need in my world. I can make that GPPL do it. It's going to have all the looping constructs, et cetera, that uh, would be useful to me uh why else ned why else would i want to use gppl well i mean if you're on a team that regularly interacts with developers it's nice if you're both using the same language i mean you might not be but if, if it's possible that you could both be using python or typescript or something it would make i don't know your whole workflow a little bit smoother because there's a rich, rich ecosystem of tools that surround GPPLs that make them easier to use. So, for instance, linters. You know, there's a really robust linters for Python and all the other programming languages. There's a whole bunch of libraries out there that do things that you might want to do in a programming <laughs> language. There's also a lot of testing built into these programming languages, or there's a library you can import to do things like unit testing, regression testing, uh, you know, the 16 other kinds of testing that you might want to do uh, a pretty common thing to do is some, some people write their unit tests first and then, and then write their functions and their applications. So you could take that approach with infrastructure as code. If you're using one of these GPPLs, otherwise it's just, it's not baked into the DSL. So someone has to create some sort of thing that lives outside of it. And some, and they're just not as well supported as these more general purpose tools. Hmm. It, what's the disadvantage then? Because GPPL, it, I, I could make an argument. Even if I'm a sysadmin who's ignorant of GPPLs, I don't know one. I didn't grow up with uh, basic and uh, you know moving turtles around the screen. <laughs> uh, wouldn't wouldn't I be better served maybe? Because it feels like I'm going to end up at a GPPL anyway. Shouldn't I just start there? I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I think as a sysadmin, you could probably live nicely in the you know handful of DSLs. And as long as it's not stretching the limitations of what you need to you know get your work done, it's fine. You don't need to go the, the full-blown uh, GPPL route. Um, and the other thing I'll say about GPPLs is they can do a ton of stuff, yes, but they can also do stuff really badly. And badly meaning my if my code is bad, it does it badly. That is that your point? Precisely. So one of the nice things about most of these DSLs and the software behind it is it has best practices baked into how to interact with various APIs and the order in which to create resources and that kind of thing. When you move away from that and now you're responsible for making sure that logic is included in your code, 
you might do it, but you might not do it in the most efficient way. Mm. What about things like input sanitization? Like I'd have to write, if I use GPPL, I got to write that and make sure that the input I'm getting is good. Does a DSL kind of handle some of that for me? Uh, to a certain degree, it does. And it, you know, because it's interacting with these APIs, it already does some error checking for you before it's even going to submit that value to the API. If it knows it's bad, it's going to kick it back and say, hey, you gave me this tuple and I'm looking for a string here, buddy. I, I, mm. I can't accept that input. Yeah, there's a very good chance if you were working with a GPPL, you'd be responsible for writing that error checking. And I think that's where a tool like Pulumi comes in or the Terraform CDK or AWS's CDK. Those libraries, when you use them in a GPPL, include some of that stuff out of the box. So you aren't responsible for writing all that from the ground up. Yeah, and Pulumi gives you that framework so you can do uh, testing to see what your result would be if you ran it, and it's got state management, and it it bakes in some of these things uh, around that to prevent you from having to do uh, all of that logic and bake all of that into the code yourself. <laughs> so I want to I want to talk about something that's not exactly infrastructure as code, but it's like adjacent, and it's something that's come up multiple times in conversations. And it's sort of where do you put the logic and where do you put the configuration information for your infrastructure? Because you could put them both together 100%. But in that case, your code's not very flexible because it can deploy one thing and exactly one thing. You could try to put some logic into your code to make decisions on your part, and then it can get real funky quick. Or you can completely separate the configuration and the logic and have the running of the software, the marrying of the two. And I don't think there's a great answer, but I just wanted to bring up the question. Well, is the, the questions, I, I thought you were talking about like, what repos do I store these things in? That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about logically how to organize the code and what calls what from where to do what it does. Yeah, I've run into this sort of different wording. There's infrastructure as code, and then other folks have been using the term infrastructure as software, where instead of it just being defining your infrastructure in code, now it's more of a full-blown software suite, or infrastructure as data, which is defining your infrastructure in configuration and then loading that config into something that can then deploy that infrastructure. <laughs> It feels like we're going to be arguing about, uh, you know, is it multi-cloud? Is it hybrid cloud? What, what kind of a cloud is it? And we're going to, you know, well, what is, what do we mean by, oh boy. So, okay. So infrastructure as software. This is the first time I've heard of this term. So this is uh, fascinating and depressing. Thank you, Ned. I don't know if it's depressing. I think one of the problems that you run into when you're trying to add any sort of conditional logic into your configuration is you've made it kind of fragile to a certain degree and you're doing something with uh, a DSL, not even a DSL, but you're doing something with a configuration language that it was never meant to do. So the classic example is in YAML, if I start adding conditionals through something like Helm, now my YAML gets modified by something and I don't know exactly what's going to be deployed when it's fed into the API. Because the YAML is a result of uh, some YAML configuration generator that's passing through all of these conditionals, you're saying. Right. So at the end of it, I mean, I can do a dry run and see the YAML that's actually going to get submitted to the API. 
but that's an additional step that I have to do. So there's an idea of what I actually want is these final YAML artifacts that someone can review. And then before that, I have my code that generates that YAML. And separately, I have the configuration information that gets fed into my code to generate that YAML. <laughs> right. So I can generalize the, the logic to a certain degree, and that's useful. And I can have my configuration stored somewhere else and have someone else manage it. And then they can make very simple updates to the configuration that then gets exported as a JSON or YAML or whatever into the code that generates the final YAML, the final uh, product. It is feeling like a bit of a Rube Goldberg machine at that point. Well, isn't that what a pipeline is? <laughs> it's just... Yeah, no, it, but it also feels right because you've separated components into discrete chunks that you can assign responsibility to different people that are in an ops team to handle uh, and give each of them control over things that fall within their area of expertise. Not having to deal with all of the components is... <sighs> It, it's interesting. It lets you become more flexible with how you're delivering that infrastructure. Uh, but, it, but it does feel more complex. And it's not, you know, one person who kind of knows all the, the pieces to make all of this happen doing it. It's spreading the load out amongst a, a bunch of people. And if you don't have a team with that much granularity, I don't, I don't immediately know that I see, would see the point. <laughs> I think that is, that's a very valid observation is this would not be useful in a team of five people. (laughs) It's unlikely that you would do that sort of level of separation if your organization doesn't look like something that has a lot of levels of separation when it comes to who's responsible for what. So I think we can probably back this out to the DSL versus GPPL conversation. Hmm. I think your choice of adoption to a certain degree is going to depend on the structure of your organization. So if you have a bunch of teams where you have developers working alongside ops people and everybody has kind of a computer science programming background, then a GPPL is probably going to work really well for you. If you have like a platform team that's responsible for creating platforms that app teams are then going to deploy against, that platform team might be very happy just using a DSL to define the infrastructure or the templates that then the app teams can use to set up the infrastructure to run their app. Uh, but again, you need to be structured uh, in that way. Ned, you're saying there's no one right answer. Jeez, Ned, I just wanted a black and white. Do this, don't do that. It, it, we're back to it depends again. Yeah, that's always the perennial answer for anything in (laughs) IT. But I think what's like important to remember about that is that's not an invalid answer. As long as you qualify it with, okay, and here's how you go about evaluating the it depends and coming to an answer that actually matches your context, because that's what it's all about. It's it depends within context. Once you've given me the full context of your situation, Okay, then it's easier to make a recommendation of whether you should start with a DSL or a GPPL. Well, are we creating a false dichotomy here? We've staged this whole thing as either or. Is there a a, a both? I think there's definitely a continuum. And I could certainly see situations where you would continue to use DSLs for specific 
use cases within your environment whilst while adopting a GPPL to stitch everything together in like a pipeline kind of situation. That's actually something that I'm starting to run up against when I'm using Terraform is I need things to happen outside what Terraform can do before the next thing needs to happen with say Terraform or something else. And so mm. the answer to stitch that together is a more general purpose programming language, language that can reach out to these DSLs, get things done, ingest their output, and then send it to the next stage in the proper way. Another element of this conversation is we've sort of implied if you are using a DSL, you're using a DSL, like you pick Terraform and that's what you're using. Is that also false where we might be using Terraform and Ansible, something like that? <laughs> yeah, I think to a certain degree, the DSLs you use might also be dictated by the vendors that you work with. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hate to say it, but uh, yeah, some vendors are, they have opinions on what they want you to use to interact with their products. And so, yeah, you might end up in a situation where you're using two or three different DSLs because you're using these different vendors that have opinionated approaches. And that's certainly something that I've come into contact with. Presumably, if you're in the Red Hat family, they're going to direct you towards Ansible. That would be logical. <laughs> Make a lot of sense. Uh, but Ansible can't do all the things necessarily. Terraform is wildly popular with tons of providers and, you know, m more coming, it seems, all the time. And so, you know, that's... That's the hotness. That's what everybody seems to want to learn is Terraform. Uh, yeah. And then you still have, like I mentioned, Helm charts before. So that's another mm -hmm. DSL that if you're in the world of Kubernetes and deploying these applications, Helm, something that you're probably going to want to get into. And that is really just conditional YAML. That's what it, it generates YAML based on conditions. So there's that to, to, to deal with. And then just the YAML that Kubernetes uses by itself for the manifests, again, it's another DSL. So yeah, in, in my daily working, I could be in three or four DSLs easily. And at least the nice thing is most of them have a very common uh, syntax or a very common layout uh, that seems to be approximating YAML or JSON if they are not actual YAML or JSON. <laughs> It again, going back to the Rube Goldberg machine analysis, there's all these tools that are generating all these things. It does feel like the tooling itself can become a, a, a burden as much as a help. And there's, there's <laughs> going to be moments where it's like, screw it. I'm going into the AWS UI and I'm going to click things like a caveman and get it done that way rather than just you know, bother beating my head against all these uh, different provisioning tools. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Often when I'm first deploying a new resource or you know service or whatever in the cloud and I don't know how it works and I don't know which options to pick, I'm gonna go through the ClickOps route first because that's gonna give me a nice wizard who kind of, that kind of tells me what the default should be and what I should expect it to look like when it's done. And then I can go backfill that as infrastructure as code. But yeah, that's, that's usually my first stop is, is doing it through the wizard. Uh, I don't know. That's also, you know, old man yells at cloud kind of meme <laughs> moment uh, too, uh, because there there are certain things. Now, I don't do a lot. I manage, you know, a handful of servers in my my day to day work. I don't need to stand up and tear down infrastructure all that often. So, how hard is it for me to go into my VPS provider and click a couple of things and spin up a box that is, you know, pre provisioned with I don't know WordPress on it and web server and stuff. I mean, that's pretty easy if I don't have to do it a lot. Uh, at the same time, it's happened enough where it's like, 
geez, I should script this. You know, I should find a tool that's doing this for me and, uh, you know, and make it happen. But, uh, with larger shops, Ned, I know you've talked to a lot of folks and you, uh, you instruct and teach, uh, many of these folks, what is their typical scenario where they bring in Ned to teach, you know, Terraform, let's say, is it because they're adopting it and it's becoming part of their, I don't know, their DevOps practice? Uh, most of the time it's already in their organization to some degree. And it's either getting a team up to speed on on the language so that they can interact with the other teams in the organization, um, or they're using it at you know a, a basic functional level, and they want to start adding all of these more advanced things that we we kind of mentioned things like you know making good use of variables, doing some kind of testing, maybe doing some variable or input validation before it goes in, adding counts and loops and all that kind of uh, interesting uh, logic that could go into a Terraform configuration. That's They're basically looking to level up because it's already there. They're already dealing with it. Is there a scenario you run into where they are going to standardize on Terraform and all the other tools shall go away? No. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Everything's brownfield, right? There's already systems in place Anything new they can plan to use Terraform for, but the older stuff is probably going to live on for, you know, five, 10 years at least because this is IT and nothing ever really dies. You know, there's going to be that mainframe in the corner or that servers in a closet somewhere that don't work well with these newfangled tools. And you're still going to have to use whatever you were using five, 10 years ago to continue to interact with them. That's just the reality for most of these organizations. It doesn't make me happy. So I'm smiling because it's like nothing's, nothing's changed. It's just, it's the same as it ever was. The, I mean, the, the stack know, of things that you need to know to get your job done has always been, it's a bunch of things. You know, I, I need to know a bunch of different command lines to manage device. This is, let's say 20 years ago. And I need to know, you know, a bunch of proprietary little oddball things, you know, one of which manages a load balancer. And I need to know some TCL because that's how you get a lot of scripting done to do layer seven header rewrites for some HTTP streams and, you know, and whatever at all it is. And that stuff fades out. And then there's other stuff that fades in. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's just keeping up with uh, the tool of the day. It's just, uh, it's a bit <laughs> frustratingly endless. It seems like Ned, you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, in an ideal world, we'd all use the same tools and collaborate together. And, you know, it would be all <laughs> sunshine and rainbows. But you know what happens is somebody goes, I'm going to invent the tool that everybody will use. And they do. And then some people use it, but not everybody. And now we have six tools instead of five. <laughs> well, whatever the new tool is, you'll probably be teaching about it, Ned, uh, as mentioned along the way. Ned is a Pluralsight author and has a bunch of classes up there, courses that you can take. So, Ned, if they're in the Pluralsight ecosystem, uh, tell us what you've been working on for Pluralsight. Uh, most recently, I've actually been working on Azure Virtual Desktop. It's a six-course learning path to help achieve the certification and also learn how to deploy it. It's interestingly, desktop as a service is one of the fastest growing segments when it comes to public cloud computing. And so there's probably going to be a lot of adoption of Azure Virtual Desktop in the next 12 to 18 months. If you are stuck in that position, yeah, give the courses a try. Let me know what you think. Nice. Ned, how do people let you know what they think of your course or any of their other thoughts that are on your mind? Well, I don't want to listen to them. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> if you could tell me what's on my mind, that would be great. I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Put in a pull request for real. 
I know you can find me Ned thirteen thirteen on Twitter. My website's nedinthecloud.com. So if you don't if you don't want to do the Twitter thing, there's a feedback form on the website. You can fill that out and, and let me know what you think or what I'm thinking. I, I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, and my website is ethancbanks.com. I'm writing about all the tech stuff I am working on these days, as long with uh, thoughts about current industry trends and so on all happen there. And I have been ramping up my Twitter feed, getting things back to what I was doing before. I don't know, hmm. the pandemic and all kinds of craziness <laughs> happened in the world. And I just couldn't Twitter anymore. I'm, yeah. I'm Twittering again, again at EC Banks. Thanks to all of you for listening today. Virtual high fives. You are awesome. If you have suggestions for future shows, Ned and I, we, we really would like to hear them. We'll, we'll find a guest. We'll find an expert. We'll bring them on and talk about the thing you want us to talk about. That's at day two cloud show on Twitter. Or if you're not on Twitter, then go to Ned's fancy website there, nedinthecloud.com. He's got a form you can fill out to let us know what you want to hear about on day two cloud. If you'd like a little bit more from the Packet Pushers podcast network, we got a weekly newsletter called Human Infrastructure Magazine that is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet. We just, we curate news stories, blog articles, tech stuff, and put it all in that newsletter for you. It's free. It doesn't suck. We're not using it to sell your name to vendors. We're not doing any of that stuff. We're just trying to share good information and save you from missing out on something that might help you in your career. Packetpushers.net slash newsletter if you want to subscribe to that. And uh, we also got a Slack group, pack, packetpushers.net slash Slack. There's over 2,000 engineers in there talking about networking, cloud, all kinds of problems, helping each other out. And there's a jobs channel in there. Maybe you want to maybe you want to try something else out. There are more and more people who are using that jobs channel in the Packet Pushers Slack group to advertise either their availability or about positions that they're trying to fill. And a lot of them are remote work. It doesn't matter where you are. You might be able to have a new career for free. Just join the Slack group and see what's going on in the jobs channel. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 